Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Mango Minute. Today I'm here with my good friend, Teo. Uh, today's episode will take sort of a different um, direction. We'll be addressing more political, um, economical, and dare I say, philosophical concepts. Um, without further ado, um, here's Teo. Teo, Hi. introduce yourself. Uh, well, as Filippo said, I'm Teo. And uh, it's great to be here on the podcast. Um, and today we'll be talking about various issues, uh, current events based, political, economic, um, also touching on some philosophical and ideolo- ideological arguments right, uh, right. within those uh, current events. And um, yeah, we'll be having uh, hopefully a little bit of a debate, a little bit right. of um, an argument on some issues, and then also some agreements on others. Of course. So without further ado, um, let's get right into the first topic. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about was democracy. Um, yeah, sorry for saying um so much, but, you know, it's just hard to build thoughts like that. Anyway, democracy. For many, I believe that, um, I mean, I think that many believe that democracy is, is sort of like the, the best or like the standard, should I say, of um, current politics. Um, regardless of what sort of branch uh, each country's democracy falls under, I feel like the, the, the essence of democracy is, could be defined as the strive to ensure everyone's political views are represented. And it's important to keep in mind that I use the word strive because I strongly believe that democracy is state to date does not actually achieve this goal. To, to, it's a constant progress. It's yeah. never achieved. Right, right. Yeah. So I just wanted to keep that in mind before we keep on talking about the, the this political system. I think uh, the established roots of democracy really evolved during the Enlightenment era with philosophers such as uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who argued that uh, the social contract should be more in a democratic way and mm-hmm. that we should give the right to the people Um, instead of Thomas Hobbes on the other side of the argument, which argued for um, inherently a more... um, He used the term Leviathan and wrote a book on it. And he said that the state should have all uh, supreme power with one sovereign having absolute um, unchallenged power over the people. And I think those views stem from their, um, their perspectives on human nature and what the human essence really is. So for Rousseau, for example, he said that the human's human essence is inherently good that we're inherently cooperative, and the state of nature is that we'll, leave, uh, we'll, we'll live peacefully with each other. However, Hobbes argued that we are selfish, uh, we're egoistic, um, and that egotistical, and that we uh, would not function under a lawless society, and that a, a Leviathan state must be established in order for, for people to live um, yeah, a high quality of life, and for people to survive, basically. And, yeah. All right, so... You know, considering what you just said, when you, when do you think was the start of democracy as we know it today? Sort of like today's idea of democracy. Well, of approximately, let's say. Well, you had revolutions like the French Revolution, which aimed to to basically overthrow um, the sovereigns, uh, and then um, what you have in various parts of the world is very different. Of course, um, you saw. Well, I, I would say liberal theory, like Rousseau's theory, was mainly the the factor that played into America's democracy. Mm. 
yeah. uh, when they took independence over the British um, in the American Revolution. Um, and I think that's really the, the founding stone of American democracy, at least. And in the UK, you have a, a different sort of democracy, of course. We still have queens and the royal family. Uh, however, that's they don't have the power to pass legislation anymore, as they did. Well, there wasn't really any legislation. All right. Yeah. Well. Well. Really. Thank you for that sort of. Yeah. That's history lesson. Um, yeah, it's definitely important to know where democracy, as we know it today, stems from. Mm-hmm. When democracy was introduced as a concept, problems that it had were sort of justified by it being in its early stages. Mm-hmm. While today, I feel like democracy finds itself with very similar or identical problems, and it is still being justified like that. And I feel like that is partly because of democracy's nature of being a strive for its ideal. You know, when, and that, when, it, when it was first introduced or first like established as, mm-hmm. as a sort of standard for modern, modern politics... It was acceptable for really not everyone being represented. And um, each country had their sort of own twist to how they were going to attempt, like, universal representation, for example. If I'm not mistaken, the U.S. has, like, each state has, like, a sort of, like, a representative. I'm I'm not sure how that's called. Uh, Quite controversial in, right. in, in America because it seems so outdated. The system seems so They're obsolete absolutely. almost. Yeah. Uh, because back in 2016, Hillary won the popular vote, but yet yet Trump actually won the, the election itself. Right. Um, so it leaves many people to wonder what the system really is about and, and why it's in place and why it hasn't been um, amended or why it hasn't been revised. And the truth is, I think it's very hard to revise such a system. Right, but do you, do you also agree that with this idea that like democracy is sort of like the best thing we have we're sort of excusing or looking past these really i wouldn't say obvious but these imminent flaws like well, what i'm trying to get at is that a couple years like not a couple years but some years ago when when this was first introduced like people accepted these flaws these issues as a sort of like building building process to mm-hmm. what hopefully in the future might be a truly democratic society but so many years later we still find ourselves with this really like not fully representative system well yeah well then you have to view it as can any political system um of a state really be absolute can it really be what it is or is it constituted by other factors um so for, for example, people love to criticize communism and socialism, saying it works great on paper, but it doesn't work out uh, when it manifests itself uh, physically in the, in the real world. People love to criticize that, for example, but I think rarely do people ever question democracy because democracy right. is, is an institution. I think it, it's become an institution, yeah. and people can't imagine anything other than democracy, uh, especially in America and especially... Um, in, in Europe, in Western Europe, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great point. That's what I'm trying to get to. Like, of course, I'm not trying to argue that um, another sort of um, system would replace democracy's, like, goal. But what I am saying is that, as you said, people seem to 
ignore all its issues because it's been so ingrained in so many people's heads that it is sort of the only thing right. we can have. And I think I feel like that's one of the, the biggest issues because people stop talking about it. People stop questioning its, its validity. Well, I think relatively speaking, uh, I think democracy serves its people a higher quality of life than other forms of government. So, for example, totalitarianism um, or communism, those types of governing have been associated historically with mm. uh, with great tragedies, with, with great loss of human life, um, with, with famines, uh, with massacres, with censorship. Right. Uh, but so I think it is um, it, it's not uh, as a flawed system as other types of governments, for sure. But democracy does have its flaws. And um, I would argue I would, I would go as far as arguing that uh, the U.S. isn't actually fully democratic. No, I, it's I, not. I'd argue the same thing. But you, you talked about how um, other systems have had, um, which is obviously true, but other systems have had many episodes in history where they have resulted in catastrophe. Yeah. But what I'm wondering is, what if democracy is sort of engendering a more long-term issue? Could it? Could you? Would do you think it could be argued that democracy is sort of like polluting our minds for in the long term, giving us like a false idea of what an ideal society? By, uh, what do you mean by polluting our minds? Sort of giving us the idea that there's no other option. Well, there are certainly many other options out there in terms of the theory, yet. I, I would find it very hard for that to be implemented into practice. I mean, um, America has been, um, the Constitution has been around since 1776, uh, right? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that without a mass civil war, without a, a political uprising on, um, on a mass scale like the world has never seen before, I don't think that the U.S. can go to any sort of other form of government. And you don't think that's... I mean, I sort of see it as it's already sort of happening. I How mean, so? As you said yourself, the uh, the U.S. is not really truly democratic, and the the more we go on, the more we see this sort of like false dichotomy that has become American politics. There's so much polarization that mm-hmm. is there really an other option than the two that are really the prominent ones. I mean, it, we've seen time and time again that the U, the United the United States like political situation has almost lost any intermediate ideology. And the two that have the two prominent ones are almost distorted from their initial like concepts. So do you do you think that do you honestly think that the like the democracy has has actually been sustained since when it was first introduced in the Constitution. Well, let's make this clear, for example. Uh, the U.S. was, I don't think, has ever been more democratic than it probably has been in the, in the last two, 20 years, really. Uh, for example, I mean, blacks were given the right to vote after the Civil War, which was that time before really democracy? No, right? No. And, and uh, females, they were given the vote uh, the the right to vote women's suffrage after uh, or near the end of World War One, nineteen seventeen, right? Um, so, 
you know, is that really a democracy? No, I, I understand totally what you're saying. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There are sort of like face value things that such as like women's suffrage and like um, universal voting that are indications of how the U.S. has evolved in terms of like yeah. democracy. But what I'm what I'm sort of arguing is that there's there's issues that we we aren't able to see as like imminently as those I sort of I sometimes see American politics as like a a shift from democracy to a sort of new system that gives people two choices and whether or not you agree with them your 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 opinion floats towards them because American discourse or just political conversation has become um, Republican versus... Um, or even more, it's become conservative, liberal, it's become right. capitalist, socialist. Right. Anybody who sides with Bernie, you're a socialist. Anybody who sides with Trump, oh, you're a fascist, racist. You know, it, it's... Um, yeah, it's a totally absurd. Well, I, I think that... Um, the U.S. has been divided uh, for a long time. I mean, even past the Civil War, um, for example, you saw the Confederates and uprising as a sort of rebellion uh, to overthrow the North, the, the Union, right? Um, and, and that still exists today. I mean, if you go to the South of America, there are a lot of um, people who claim that the Confederate flag is part of their heritage. And... Um, and recently, actually, the Pentagon, um, the Pentagon has introduced a bill or a policy that effectively bans the display of Confederate flags on U.S. military installations, which is actually, a, I think it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, but I also wonder why it's taken so long for Americans to realize that this flag represents an ideology or re represents a culture which is discriminatory, which is uh, hateful, which has oppressed people in the past. And uh, and a lot of people will say, oh, it's it's freedom of speech, and yeah, there's a fine line where that right begins and another right ends. You know, um, where do the rights infringe upon one another? That's the I think that's that's a key issue here. Uh, where do the rights contradict each other? Yeah. My my right to personal security and your right of freedom of speech. Where do those right. you know contradict each other? Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, one uh, final thought I think about when I think about democracy, considering the thing that Taylor said, which honestly is being pretty eye-opening. Um, mm -hmm. Something that's, I think, very important to think about is democracy's um, application throughout the world. Right. Um, I think for many, especially people in the Middle East or Africa, democracy has been sort of um, related to or branded as uh, Western colonialism, or yeah, yeah, sort of how how do I put this like Western neo neo colonialism neo colonialism. Yeah, there you go. Because and that honestly, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm not saying that it's inapplicable in those places, but using Africa as an example, yeah, um, for 
so much time in history, Africa, the, the entire continent has been organized. Oh, you mean before the European colonies? Right, right, okay. right. Yeah, before yeah. before European yeah. coloni- colonies. And e- even perhaps during them, but either way. Um, Africa has been organized in tribes or small groups. Yeah, it was very tribal. Right, and not, had, not that... They had dis- distinct ethnic groups and, and factions right. which they belonged to. And which Europeans technically or and, and effectively actually just disrupt, disrupted it. right and uh, and Africa's political climate can be attributed to that. I mean, right. I think that's a very good point. And I, I obviously I'm not, I'm not trying to say this as sort of like a discriminatory way, but I feel like that is the Af- like I'm not generalizing, but for a large part of Africa, that is the culture, and the the inap- inapplicability. I think that's a word. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Of democracy is sort of epitomized there because for example the, the the concept of borders in Africa wasn't really there before yeah, it, was it was introduced I think it was completely alien to them right before it was introduced by either Europeans or even um, Americans later and it, it just proves how some this this like even even the concept of a nation-state isn't really applicable in there I, I, I would argue they're stateless nations Right, stateless nations, yes. and and this is proven by how many like like wars there are, civil wars. And I don't yeah. even know if they could be categorized as civil wars because there's so little in common that certain countries have within themselves. I mean, you look at well, really, very for us, for us outsiders looking into you know African culture, for us it's it's very distinct. I mean, for us it's we see one people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, for Africans, it's very different. I mean, they have distinct ethnic groups. They have distinct tribes, which they adhere to, and they have right. And all this within one country or within one, like, our of our idea of a country. And I feel like, well, yeah, within 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 one given territory, right? Because I I I I'm almost sure that there's a large portion of Africans that don't understand the concept of a nation state because. Prior to that, and still today, Africa is sort of divided by tribes, whether or not those be within or like across. Well, I think there's a power vacuum uh, in a lot of parts of Africa. Um, there's a, there's clearly a power vacuum where rebel groups fight with each other. They fight the civilians. They fight the government or the so-called government. They they fight UN peace troops, peacekeepers. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's an incredibly intricate situation and complex situation. And I don't think it can be solved that easily. You know? Right. I think that peacekeeping will not, will not suffice. It, it will not help. Even, even on a more idealistic level, I am not sure that democracy could fix that because for so many years, like, um, humanitarian intervention has ended with the goal of establishing a democratic state. Yeah, this is not only in Africa. This is in the Middle East. Yeah. a lot, a lot in the Middle East, and mostly from the U.S. And there's just these these cultures are just, in my opinion, incompatible with it. And this is evident because there's there's almost no social structure. I mean, the social structure is divided by the values that these populations had prior well this is what you well, this is what happens when you try to apply a universalist um stance on the issue in different parts of the world right. i mean we have we have to consider the fact that 
democracy, Western liberal democracy, does not work in other parts of the world. And exactly. this is one point where I disagree with a uh, famous political scientist, uh, Francis Fukuyama. He has a very interesting theory yeah. on um, the end of history, in which um, history is, is basically constantly um, accumulating to this one point and culminating to this one ultimate destination in which the majority of the world uh, um, implements uh, a Western liberal democ democracy in their country or in their states. And um, I, I'm not sure if I really agree with that. I mean, that that's basically saying that we're all standardized, that we're all the same, and that's clearly not the case. I mean, we have very distinct cultures, we have very distinct people, um, and um, yes. That's, yeah, that's you're, you're absolutely right. I agree 100%. Um, I want to take you back to something you, you said. You used the term, I think you used the term, yeah. like universal, or like universalism. Yeah. And I think I feel like that's a very interesting topic. Uh, that's a very interesting point with what you just said. Yeah. And the concept of relativism or cultural relativism. And it's sort of what we've been alluding to. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Um, throughout this whole conversation. And do you, do you want to define relativism or culture? I feel like you have a, a well, good idea of what relativism is. It's the notion is. that each culture is different and each culture has their distinct set of definitions of a particular concept. So for example, if we're talking about human rights, right. every right. culture has their own notion of human rights and, um, and conflict ensues when, when institutions, when global institutions and IGOs like the UN, for example, mm -hmm. tries to implement universal human rights in those places of the world where they have their own set of human rights. Um, and we can all talk about this later, but, uh, we, we wanted to talk about, um, the universe's inherent good or evil and right. if that's really just a social construct or if it's not right no yeah it's yeah. very interesting to, to look at and i think that this sort of dilemma are human rights to be universal or just um local considering like a relative, relative thing yeah i think they're honestly i think they're very valid arguments for both sides but Considering what we've been talking about re, um, in this episode, um, I feel like tail is more lenient to a uh, relative. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to talk about relativism in the context of human rights? Uh, well, yes. Uh, relativism in this human right con human rights context, uh, I think, would be more applicable to today's situation because um, I, I feel like the UDHR. Um, Universal Declaration of Human rights, rights. Yes, for those who don't know, and the the UN have have basically failed universal human rights. I mean, there are so many instances, uh, and this also this is also due to a lack of power for the UN, uh, which I deem to be um, not the most effective, uh, at the most effective IGO there is, uh, um, and and yeah, I feel like universal human rights have sort of failed us because so many violations occur but there's nothing the UN can really do about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of a lot of examples I'm unfortunately not very familiar with these, but you know, the the one the most typical one is a female genital mutilation, yes. FGM, yeah. which yeah. yeah, for those who don't know, I mean, the the name is pretty self-explanatory, but in some cultures women are um sort of um parts of their um body especially like in the reproductive organs, yes. the ones that are usually related to pleasure are removed. And um, for many years has been the argument, is that in fact um, 
a violation of human rights or mm-hmm. is that something that is so embedded in the culture that it just it's part of them it's yeah. part of them yeah so it's 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 really it's it's really hard to 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 judge and a lot of people make the argument that you you ask those in power of course you're going to say that it's part of the culture but perhaps were you to ask the women that are actually being mutilated then that right. might be a different story so then what what do we do what do we do now do we try to implement the udhr which would in fact prevent yeah female yeah um general mutilation or do we stick to stick do we accept this cultural relativism hence allowing this not uh, to occur anymore. right so it, it just really leaves us in this dilemma because I mean, even in America, you have debates whether um, female uh, females should be in charge of their own reproduction in terms of abortion, in terms mm-hmm. of birth control. And, and that's like one of the key debates in America in the past years have been um, conservatives saying that it's a, a loss of life if, if you abort a child. Or even some go as extreme as saying birth control is a loss of life or a prevention of human life and that it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't exist anymore. Uh, whereas, whereas people on the left would, would argue that um, it's their own bodies, they can do whatever they want to. It's not a it's their right. human life. It's their right to their right. to abort their um, child their, their or, child or their, child. their pregnancy, right, to abort right. their pregnancy and to take control and ownership of their own bodies. I mean, yeah, but that is an argument by itself. And All right, so moving on from this issue that has sort of branched out into a lot of other things. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how the the concept of or the importance of discourse has been decreasing over time. Um, this can be seen a lot with, um, I mean, actually, no, not not very recently with the whole. I mean, obviously, there has been a lot of talk about the Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, but throughout the years, we have seen a, too much fluctuation in people not neglecting certain topics and one example is for me the or for me and tail mostly tail is the possibility of a nuclear war and i wanted tail to sort of give his thoughts about that well i think my fear really stems from the realist school of thought particularly structural realism uh and the main proponent was uh John Mearsheimer, and he he basically proposed that, uh, and classical realism also um, also talked about this. But uh, when you have multipolarity in an international system, meaning that you have several state actors which have uh, which have vast amounts of power, the world is more unstable and less peaceful, and and that's why during the Cold War you had bipolarity, meaning that. Uh, the USSR and the US had most power in the world. And um, although a lot of people would say that that was a uh, in time, that was a period of time of incredible uncertainty and fear of of a nuclear war of, or of any other sort of war. Um, I would refute that because it, it was although in the 60s, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, I, I think that um, during that ideological war, or also the Cold War, um, I would I would think that it was really ca- characterized by a period of of peaceful um, of peacefulness. Yeah. 
of peace of peace yeah what do you think of like there was talk of a possible third world war with with iran yeah what do you think is the the countries with the most imminent threat like today of a nuclear war well considering considering state behavior and their relations with the outside i would say north korea is probably the most imminent threat of sending nuclear missiles elsewhere would, would you argue that all of these somehow stem from the united states conflicts with the united states well you had the korean war of course um the u.s yeah. fought chinese and north korean troops uh supplied by the, the soviets during the 50s for around three years i believe and um because of fear of when if korea were to fall to the communist then that would happen likewise around um, asia and that communism would spread all throughout Asia. And that was the leading factor, the right. leading policy decision for um, American policymakers to, right. uh, to you know, help, help out. Um, the re- I think it's called like the Red Fear, something like that. Well, the Red Scare, yeah. The Red Scare. That was the second major right. Red Scare right. after World War Two. The yeah. first being um, around 1917 when the Bolsheviks took over um, Russia and turned it Soviet. Mm-hmm. But the second one had more drastic implications. Right. So, right. Um, so yeah, I would argue that North Korea has is probably the biggest threat in terms of nuclear war. Mm. But I mean, there are nine major con- nine ma- major countries which are nuclear capable in the world right now, which is far more than we ever had. Mm. But at the same time, uh, we have treaties that aim to reduce our arsenals of. Um, of nuclear weapons so at the height we had i think russia had around fourteen thousand one hundred something nuclear weapons and that was during the 80s uh, shortly before the fall of um of the ussr and now we have around more around three thousand um per country russia having a bit more than the u.s the states that we know have nuclear weapons include france the uk russia china um, Israel, Pakistan, mm. India, North Korea, um, and that's it, I believe. Uh, and, and nuclear programs are incredibly hard. They're incredibly expensive, mm. time-consuming. Um, so not a lot of states can afford them in the first place. But when you have nine countries, two of them being very, um, being very hostile with one another, like we see with India and Pakistan, uh, in the skirmishes and. Kashmir, and now even India and China, um, I, I do think that a possibility of a nuclear war can result in, um, in yeah, uh, in tragedy. But I, I, at the same time, the way nuclear weapons, particular in, particularly in America, are being handled um, with the president having more power than anybody else to uh, send his missile strike in less than a couple of minutes, I, f- I find that ridiculous. I mean, think about it. Trump has a briefcase with him. Every president has a briefcase w- with him uh, where they can send um, intercontinental ballistic missiles elsewhere within a couple of minutes. And I, I don't think that without... I don't think that every president is qualified to have that power. And who has that sort of power to completely right. destroy civilization like that? Right, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, 
Very good point. These are weapons of mass destruction, and we're giving people the responsibility of that. Um, so would you I, argue for the complete like destruction of every nuclear Well, weapon? I think that's very hard to do because there's a lot of mistrust and skepticism within the international right. community. So, for example, two states with nuclear weapons would be safer than uh, one with nuclear weapons and the other without. It'd be safer because they both fear nuclear annihilation, right? right? Oh, yeah. Um, so it's sort of a, a chicken game. It's, it's sort of... Well, not a chicken game. It's sort of a game in which you have to anticipate a your cold, opponent's moves. sort of a Cold War. Well, yes. Uh, because, obviously, uh, states aren't transparent with everything that they do. Right. Right. Even... Yeah, I mean, I would argue even the United States is not... Yeah. And having nuclear weapons would be safer than not having them. And having... Even the fear of other states knowing or thinking that you have them is greater than actually having them. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. Very interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you made some very good points. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a scary, scary situation, I feel like. As you said, it's very neglected. But it's not something that we think about every day. Right. But it's, at any moment, um, we could be totally wiped off... The, the, the face yeah. of the earth. I mean, in a matter of seconds. Just one bad tweet away. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that would be very, you know, cynical view of it. But yeah, it's. I think it's possible that a nuclear war could start, I think, probably between either India and Pakistan or India and China. India and China. Yeah. I would, I, I'd, I'd have said China and the United States is the primary one. Well, I mean, at the end of the like, at the end of the day, they're interdependent, meaning that they rely on economic ties. But they're trying so hard to remove this inter- interdependence, both of them. You know, obviously they haven't achieved well, that. Well, no. But it's well, they the actually trade had a lot war. of trade war talks to, to see if they can find a compromise or see if they can find common ground. Um, so I don't think they're, that either country uh, is better off if Without, they totally yeah, cut yeah. ties with one of them. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah we live in such a globalized world where um, we can't be isolated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You talked at the start of the podcast about human essence. And right. the question is, which we, we, we already talked about a little bit in the first episode of the podcast, but mm-hmm. is the human good, in, in essence, are humans good or humans evil? Well, I think that's a very, very complex issue to have a discussion about yeah. and it's an incredibly difficult question to even ask right. because what is good and what is evil I, I think those terms are very relative and would, they they vastly depend on the context in which right. you're you, using them I was going to ask is there like a a specific context in which we would address this question well we've already talked a lot about human rights but is there something else we could talk about I think we could use philosophers and their philosophy to sort of lead the way in this discussion. I mean, uh, feel free, yeah. Friedrich Nietzsche, he said uh, that basically good and evil are largely dependent on the historical context. And um, Michel Foucault, he was a French uh, philosopher during the 60s um, and also 70s, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he pushed for post-structuralism and had many interesting theories that linked knowledge and power with one another. And uh, they were also in, a, in agreement in terms of saying that good and evil are shaped by actors who have who possess the power 
in in the, in a particular context. Um, and I think this is why like religious morality, for example, in the U.S., for example, um, is so popular because of the church and Europe, of course, as well, because the church had power. They had the power to determine what is right and what is wrong, even though we may look, look back at that now and say that's totally that's totally ludicrous. Those things aren't bad, like homosexuality. Right. This is, for example, why so many people in the U.S. view it as, as something that that isn't good or isn't isn't acceptable because you know the church had the power to determine what is good and what is wrong yeah i mean even today with um sharia law it's very radical but then again you have that uh, issue of relativism versus universalism Mm. that the west will never understand the east because the east has different culture you know so yeah i mean but then fuk Fukuyama, I think part of his theory would, would argue that um, the East would go through a similar process as the West and um, become more liberal, in a sense, become more open with the ideas of homosexuality, with the ideas of females having, having equal power to men. Um, and we've yet to see that happen. I mean, right. um, I don't think that such an ideolo- ideological shift would occur in the Middle East, for example, or in Africa in the next 10, 20 years, or even 30 or 40. I mean, right. I don't see that really happening. Right, yeah. I mean, even in like China, for example, China prioritizes certain rights over rights that people in the United States or Europe take for granted. Mm-hmm. And that has positives and negatives. And it's But yet just, we see Trump... Um, repeatedly trying to um trying to uh disqualify the media trying to discredit the media mm. the free press i mean it's yeah. it's quite crazy yeah that's a good point but you know what i was trying to get to is that perhaps the the ideals that fukuyama has are not only are they too idealistic but perhaps they are just not applicable and not effective for example you look at china that prioritizes economic rights over freedom of speech or just first generation rights and i don't i don't know i don't don't know the exact numbers but um in the past i don't know 10 20 years they've lifted like 300 million people out of out of poverty Mm -hmm. yeah i think china is one of those rare cases in which socialism with certain characteristics in this case being chinese characteristics has actually panned out has actually shown has has yielded uh, incredible results i mean i think you see that as well in singapore singapore mm-hmm. is another example but it, it's i don't think you can draw parallels to china and singapore in in, in a detailed way because singapore is much smaller it's a much smaller scale mm-hmm. you know yeah it's... and they have less draconian mm-hmm. measures than than china for example but even for, to the West, Singapore is heavily restricted by the state. So you have that interesting di- dynamic playing out. And, um, and another thing about Fukuyama and Nietzsche, although they're very different because Nietzsche was a long time before, it was in the 1800s, and uh, Fukuyama is a political scientist. Uh, but the, I think that you could try to see things from different perspectives. So Fukuyama said that, I think this is a really fascinating point. He said that, History has a certain end to it, uh, a, a place to which we are um, constantly culminating towards, that we're uh, towards that end of history. And after that end of history, there will be no major world events, no major world wars, 
um, and that where it's a set linear path, right? I think that's really fascinating, but I don't think I fully agree with it. And Nietzsche said that history, and Foucault also agree with this, that history is open-ended and it's uh, contingent and it's, um, it's always changing. You know, it's, it's crazy how social scientists, like, I, like uh, concepts, it's, it's interesting to see actually how those play out in the real world. Right. Yeah, because yeah. they're so abstract and it's so intangible. But, but once reality, it manifests itself in the real you're world, you like, would wow. say, wow, that's a theory taking place yeah. in the real world. But like, then, again, you have this incredible problem with theories, which theories never fully explain anything. Right. There's a... I mean, I think it's called like the... I, I, this could be brought back to like the parato- paradox of cartography. Right. Mm-hmm. What, what we sort of like create in like any sort of model, whether that be like a physical model, even like a societal model, is never going to be like a like a a hundred percent of what happens in the real world. Yeah. I mean the the paradox paradox of cartography itself is the idea that we will never be able to map the world a hundred percent. And I feel like we this this concept could actually be applied to international um, relations or right. Yeah. How are we to... And this is why I'm such a firm believer in realism, because realism doesn't attempt to um, identify and explain the intricacies and the technicalities of, of international relations, but it, it attempts to, to basically fun- fundamentally explain the big questions. For example, mm. power politics. Who has a power? Who doesn't have a power? You know? Mm, yeah. Um, and, and that's why I'm such a firm believer in realism. Right, so, I mean, going back to the question that we sort of, like, have far surpassed, and a realist would say that human is, to some extent, inherently evil. Niccolo Machiavelli, right, the Italian philosopher, I'm sure you were. No, of course I'm aware. Uh, he, along with him and Hobbes, uh, they were basically the founding uh, yeah, concepts of classical realism founded by Hans Morgenthau during mm. the 60s. Um and then from that, structural realism evolved um, with John Mearsheimer, and yes, that's... So, what would you, sort of, your, your, like, your, your, con- like, your idea of, like, what would modern theory realism be today? What, what do you think that is? Well... Do you think, it, do you think it's that, in, like, connected to the state? I think what we're seeing now is a lot of liberal theory taking place in the real world. That's what, I think that, that's what we're seeing, I mean... Uh, the EU is having coronavirus talks for um, a, a huge stimulus package. Um, that's states cooperating, you know, in an IGO, or some might say a supranational entity, but that's another discussion for another time. Um, yeah, it's actually but, yeah, I'm about, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think there's very liberal f- theories. I think that, yeah, a lot of current events give credence to liberal theory more mm-hmm. than realist theory. Yeah. Well. That's but and this is the the problem with theories. They never they never adequately explain anything. That's why we have dominant. That's why we have critical theories that attempt to s- explain smaller things. Where, um, in in the gaps that dominant theories leave behind. So like and, a relativism within theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, no, not I, I was gonna say it, but yeah, I suppose yeah. But well, I guess that's it's good that theories never explain anything fully because. Imagine a world where everyone's behavior was mapped out. Yeah. That would be impossible. Like, yeah. Some, it's literally like... 
I think un- inconceivable. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, that's what makes politics politics, right? Mm-hmm. The, the differences and our our ability to, to change things, or at least right. so they say. Do you think, you know, a little off topic, mm-hmm. maybe not that much into politics, but you think people change? People. Well, I think. Uh, Sorry about this, but Nietzsche said this. He had this concept of Übermensch, which is German for, how would I say this? Um, overhuman or super, not super, yeah, like superhuman. So it's our concept of an ideal that we are, that we are constantly striving towards. This, this I- ideal uh, person that is in our minds of ourselves. So mm-hmm. that we're trying to manifest in a real life form mm-hmm. and that we're constantly tr- striving towards. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but that's one of his uh, proposed theories on human nature, and that we, and that change, change is very interesting because not a lot of people are welcome to it, right? We we sort of learn to fear change, and anything familiar is, is uh, good, yeah. 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 But yeah. But change is is um, an inevitable part of of life. Well, we know that. Traumatic experiences, unfortunately, change people, not always for the better. I think experiences that challenge everything that you thought of the world will change you. And I've had a lot of those moments mm. where everything, what I thought up to that point, was challenged in a very scary way, in mm. a way that I've never imagined. Mm. You know what I mean? Was that, was that more related to the people you met? It was the experience that I've, I've gone through. Um, I see. And and once you've gone through something like that, I think your whole world view changes. Really? Yeah. And there's you think there's enough of you changed to say that you've changed as a person. There's not something that you 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 kept from who you, the person you were before. Well, I, I certainly believe there are remnants of uh-huh. the person that I was, but fundamentally, I think that I I've changed a lot, and. Um, I've adapted to the person that I've I need to become. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Need because what become. what we need to become is very different from what we want to become. Can can could you argue that you don't need to become anything? Well, in order to survive, right? We need to survive. We have to adapt. Do you think we in today's world? Do you think that humans survive or live? If that if that makes sense, like. Because you, you, you talked about needing to do something, mm-hmm. but more and more I feel like humans no longer need to do a lot of things. So do you think that yeah, we, that's, we survive? Yeah, that's a funny point. That's a funny point. Do you, do you think that humans are still surviving or we're just living? I think we're just living, honestly. So we don't need to do anything. We've reached this point in in the world where you can lay around and do nothing, do nothing for your life and still survive. I mean, yeah, although it's not as simple as that, right. but we've come to a point where uh, that there's less of our core human tendencies playing out. But when we have the opportunity to display our human nature as raw and as vigorous as it is, we go all out. <laughs> and the protests, the protests give, for example, looting, uh, that gives people the opportunity to go all out, to let their... <laughs> Let that their innermost desires, their most humanistic, raw and vigorous desires play out, and that's just 
Yeah. Do you find that to be a universal concept that's innate in every human? Well, I think biologically we're made to, uh, to <laughs> yeah. anticipate danger and react to danger. But no, no, this no, no. You just talked about being like an ass. Just like oh, uh, of just going all out yeah. and just. Do you think? Do you think that in every human there's that sort of like, I wouldn't say breaking point, but that oh yes, lingering need to go all out, as you said. Do you think that's in it in everybody? Well. I think that we can be conditioned or trained to uh, withstand that. Like suppress the, the suppress need. that, yeah, suppress that need for like those survivalistic tendencies. Mm. I, I think that we don't see that as much nowadays because we've become more civilized. We we don't we don't well, we are we aren't dependent on hunting anymore, or the mm. vast majority of us aren't. Mm. At least yeah. in the Western world. Let's talk about the Western world, not the Eastern, because that's a different story. Right. Right. And. So do you think that has like sort of numbed us down to the point where we just... I mean, yeah, I think that's why depression rates are so high. And that's why anxiety rates are so high. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think like going back to the are we living or surviving, like... And, and like, I sort of think that today's world is becoming drastically dystopian. Dystopian? Dystopian, yeah. What do you, what is dystopia for you? So, we talked about this earlier, right? Um, an overstimulus of information. Now we're always exposed, constantly exposed to this perpetual flow of information towards us, and how, how we have to, we can't even identify what's important from what is trivial, you know, mm. um, and it's gotten to the point where, it it makes people stupid, <laughs> and and that's just the simplest terms. Um, there's so many things where you can what, what you can do in the world and you can be led astray by so many different things um mm-hmm. social media being one of them people can waste their lives for years not doing anything whereas back in our parents day and age um they had to they had a set path in life where they had to do something after the other so you know it would be finishing college um getting a job married get a house have kids but today that that Assumption is being challenged mm-hmm. in ways we haven't anticipated, really. Um, so, for example, a current event would be that um, scientists have found that the global fertility rate has actually gone down by half since the 1950s. And why is that? Because women, also because the rise of contraception in the 60s, of course, the birth control pill, but also women are choosing to strive after their careers and, um, and, and um, build, build their careers rather than building a family. Mm-hmm. And that can have um, drastic implications on us as humans. I mean, um, per Japan's um, and a lot of other countries' projected population is about to be cut by half by twenty sixty or so, and uh, or by uh, in sorry in around eighty years. Not the more distractions you have, the less you inclined you are to talk about the things that are actually going on. And yeah. especially, especially politics. I mean, I think not, that, yeah. sorry, not like s- there's such a small portion of my peers who are actually interested in talking about current events. I mean, I'm not like discrediting any other passion that they have, but whether you like politics or not, and politics is a very broad term, but whether you like, yeah, politics or just like being up to date or not, it should be like a innate requirement that you have because whether or not you like it, you are affected 
And people seem to think that they're affected so indirectly that they don't need to care. But more and more, we're becoming affected Mm -hmm. directly. I mean, an example that we made is the nuclear, the possibility of a nuclear war. As you said, that's not a conversation that we're having, but it's something that's so imminent and so right around the corner that... Well, yeah, it's not as imminent as other issues, for example, but, I mean, of course, that knowing that we're considering the, we're the, two the minutes severity away from a nuclear annihilation and right. nuclear holocaust is of course it's not that imminent but just considering how this like the severity and like how yeah. how catastrophic the results would be yeah even a small scale nuclear war would have to be right. catastrophic and we, we think put of, the world in a nuclear winter and right cause massive we think we think of like a nuclear fallouts that have happened even without a war and we're still seeing the effects today yeah i think Recently, in 2015, wildlife started returning to Chernobyl, which was like 30, mm. 35 or so years after. 35 years. Or so, or so after uh, the incident happened. But that was even, I mean, just imagine a, a small-scale war. Right. I mean, the fallout would create a nuclear winter and right. uh, would block the sun's rays from coming to Earth. And um, Exactly. And just how like technology has evolved, I'm sure the nuclear bomb has evolved. Oh yes, the their bomb is fifty times stronger than that dropped on Hiroshima. Right. So I mean, that dropped on Hiroshima is tiny compared to the capabilities um, right. of today. Right, and not only the the the, the like the the short term effect, but like as we we said, like the the lingering effect of a nuclear bomb is is truly frightening. Mm-hmm. It's it would limit human population, like the human life, to the point where. We'd be surviving again. Yeah, yeah that's the. Uh, <laughs> We'd yeah, be surviving. Again. I mean, that's quite literally. Yeah. Wow. It's scary to think about. Yeah. And you know, just these, all these concepts. I think I feel like it's, it's important to talk about them because I feel like when, when people stop talking about these things, that is when we really give in. I don't. I don't like the word the system, but we really give in to, being. Opposite, like sort of being ignorant i mean when once we stop challenging the power not 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 physically but in at least like consciously challenging what we see mm-hmm. we we lose this 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 value of being human that is essential to to us i mean we can't keep on like just accepting when what is going on and you know i feel like that sort of goes back to democracy like we have been, I don't like the word brainwashed either, but we've been like con- conditioned to accept it as, as it is. Yeah. And people, less and less people start to challenge it to the point where it's become the and standard. I, and I mean, our parents and our grandparents, I mean, they participated in grassroots movements in America during the 60s and 70s. I mean, the, there was a mass um, cultural revolution during the 60s, um, or not cultural, but a civil rights movement which basically um, tried to, to rectify the wrongs of the past uh, of minority people, namely black people uh, in America. And, and so many years after that, we're having the same discussion nowadays. Mm. You know? yeah. So what does that tell you about um, the, the democratic system? I mean, yeah, we, we've reached sort of, um, or I'm, I'm not American, so I'm not going to say we, but um, 
Americans have sort of reached a political stalemate in Washington in terms of politics. I mean, the rise of partisanship has has basically um, has basically not allowed any um, any party to or of of them to reach a compromise and of them to reach a common ground. Um, mm-hmm. And that's also I think I think that President Trump's election was a rise of populism. Yeah, he truly spoke to the real America which is the working-class, blue-collared families of America who feel neglected by the elite class, which feel neglected by politicians, which feel they have no say. And Trump, um, his campaign managers, they've done a superb job, I mean, unfortunately, of, of speaking to, these, of, to this real, real America. I mean, and the, the paradox of it is um, that Trump himself favors his billionaire friends over the common American family. So... Yeah. And Trump himself is a real estate tycoon. And I think that populism... I mean, I've, I've been studying populism for a while, and I think that one of the reasons why I became so skeptical of um, democracy is populism. I mean, you are allowing anyone who can control so like or manipulate public opinion to gain to do power. So. And it's yeah. it's a cycle because... I'm, I don't want to categorize anyone as evil or something, but the the existence of ignorance is now present not only in the public but in the in the government, and they complement each other. As soon as you find someone who is capable of mo- like molding public opinion using like big words with not a lot of meaning, just appealing to unfortunately the ignorant, mm-hmm. then you you sort of allowing democracy to break itself and yeah and you know technically those working class families should favor bernie sanders policies because those would help them right but there's such a social stigma around socialism and communism in america that any any notion of bernie sanders winning would be a win for um the reds for the communists i mean yeah it's yeah, it is what it is. So. Yeah, and it's, it's it's truly hard because these are things that are embedded in American minds. Yeah, and that is what is allowing this polarization, this extreme polarization. That is, it's scary, because there's it's like there's no other option. And well, maybe, I feel like it started a lot with, so, in 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 two thousand eight when President Obama mm-hmm. ran for um, Democratic nominee. I mean, the GOP had a huge responsibility. I mean, they felt that they had to defeat this guy because the election of a black president, even if he's half black, um, would be a big moment for American, uh, for American politics and for uh, for American society. So I feel like after his election as president, the, the GOP and the Republican Party, they, they thought, uh, what's our strategy now? We don't have a strategy. And um, as soon as you know it, uh, Mitt Romney ran against uh, Obama, but also lost. And then President Trump came along, and uh, he won. Um, and this is just an example of how polarized America has become. Mitt Romney condemned Trump for his uh, race relations and for his policies uh, recently on Twitter. And um, he was the GOP nominee for 2012. Just imagine that. Another Republican who was deemed conservative at the time, uh, criticizing Trump. That's just the ideological shift which has taken place over the past seven to eight years. 
the context you brought and like the historical knowledge that I hadn't considered. It's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting, really. Do you have anything else that you would like to conclude with? No, I think we've covered thought? a lot yeah, of things. Yeah, we've so. covered a lot of things. Yeah. And you have to take the first step and just have the will to talk about these things. It's, mm-hmm. it's easy to watch a YouTube video. It's easy to watch a Netflix movie, but it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's hard to take the initiative in your mind to think of the of the things that are hard to think about, maybe sad to think about, and just talk about them because yeah. you know it's just. But once you take that first step, it's 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 gonna it's gonna open your eyes to a lot of things. Yeah, and, for sure. You know that's why that's one of the, one of the main reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is because it's really. I want to promote as much as possible. I want to promote discourse as much as possible. And wh- whether you're listening or even better, if you're coming on, it's it's gonna it's gonna just open your mind on some of the things that you hadn't considered before. So, yep, that's it. I think that's it for today's episode. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks Honestly, for having me. It's been great. It's been really yeah. insightful. I I had no idea you had so much like historical knowledge, mm. especially about like political scientists and philosophers you <laughs> well really. it's been no. great being here yeah and it's i think that it's very valuable to have people like you on because unlike me and often i just you just don't just say things you come with like an idea and you you have the the, the specifics to back it up right you have to you, be informed right you, it's right. easy to it's easy to say things but if you say things and then you have stuff to back it up it's a completely different effect on people and yeah i appreciate it very much so Thank you. You're invaluable for the podcast, really. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, I know I'm aware it was more of a heavy podcast, (laughs) heavy episode, I mean. It's, I hope it gave you a little bit of insight on my and mine and Taylor's opinions on politics and on the world. Really, on everything. On everything, yeah. And, you know, I hope it also made you realize the importance of politics and how it impacts you the listener directly so thank you we'll see you or you'll hear us on the next episode thank you so much